Blog Talk Radio. solutions-oriented talk radio show. Each month, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in educational leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, this month, our guest is Ms. Jean Thompson-Grove. Uh, Jean uh, is, has been working a number of years leading seminars and professional learning communities and coaching, um, and is a former founding board member of the School Reform Initiative. So, Jean, welcome. Uh, hi, Brian. How are you? Good, good. Good afternoon. Yeah. To our faithful listeners, um, welcome back, and, and thank you for being a part of our family of over 5,000 listeners every month. And to our new listeners, we're glad you joined us. Uh, so today we're going to talk with Jean about uh, some of her work and you know, I, I have to be transparent and say, you know, Gene, I, I don't, I'm not going to tell people how far back we go, um, but um, Gene and I worked together um, quite a few years ago with the Annenberg Institute for School Reform, uh, did some work with the uh, National School Reform faculty. We've done trainings together many years ago um, and had a wonderful team of people working with us. Um, to work with teachers uh, in the Annenberg Initiative uh, uh, a couple of decades ago at this point, I think. Um, but, um, Jean, it's, it's so great to have you, and I want to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show. Um, you know, as I told you before, um, we try to include people on the show that are doing a lot of the work that is uh, a part of the buzz in education um, concerns and issues, and so uh, just in a way of giving our our listening audience um, uh, a little bit about your background, tell us a little bit about the work. I, and I mentioned briefly about the work that we did together with the Edinburgh Institute, but tell us a little bit, bring us current, um, describing a little bit about that work, bringing us current to what uh, the work is that you're you're doing now. Great, yeah, thank you. So I'll let people know how far back we go. It's, I think all the way back to the early 90s, 94, 95, when um, I was working at the at Brown University at the Coalition of Essential Schools with Ted Sizer, now deceased, um, and he brought the Annenberg money to Brown University, and the Annenberg Institute for School Reform was established right about then. And what one of the very first things we did was we gathered a group of teachers and principals, a few district office folks with whom we had been working in the Coalition of Essential Schools and said, you know, if you could do anything in professional development, what would you do? And what was really remarkable at that time is what those practitioners described was exactly what the research of Milby McLaughlin and Joe Talbot was showing out of Stanford and also Fred Newman and his associates then at the time, um, Tony Breich, uh, Karen C. Shore Lewis, out of the University of Wisconsin, which essentially said uh, it was really the beginning of the very beginning of the professional learning community kind of work, where they said mm -hmm. that when um, colleagues had an opportunity to um, bring their practice to each other and ask for feedback and really be public 
about what it was they thought, what it was they believed, including the things they hadn't necessarily said out loud before, in addition to um, saying the things they believed, actually bringing their students' work to the table and asking colleagues to observe them. Um, that when people did that kind of work together, some remarkable things happened um, for kids. And so we, they said, that's what we want to do. We said, well, guess what? what? There's research that supports that that will it, uh, lead to increased student learning. And so we started. Um, we started thinking hard about how to um, do that work in schools where it wasn't currently um, going on or wasn't happening. Uh, we, we did that work at, at Annenberg, and I can say more about it if people are interested, some of our early learning. But we took it out of Annenberg in 2000. And then in 2009, um, a number of us got regathered back together and started the School Reform Initiative and really made a decision at that time, given the context of school reform and the work that was happening, the work that we've been doing for about nine years um, together, to recommit to a new mission statement and to really think hard, some more about what it would look like to create intentional, transformational learning communities that were actually fiercely committed to educational equity and excellence. And we chose all of that language quite deliberately. And it's really changed the way I thought about my work over the last six or seven years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I, you know, one of the things that uh, just even resonated what you, you, you mentioned uh, and some of the language that you used about deliberate and intentional work uh, that you did around um, collaborating and, and having professional groups, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, uh, school leaders that listen to our show. I've had uh, the distinct pleasure of, of teaching in the our summer principal academy at Teachers College, and one of the things that I have heard that a lot of the students that come through there and even a lot of the professionals that have been in education for quite a while have reflected on is the notion that somehow um, professional learning communities, just kind of as a buzzword in the language, has been kind of overused. Tell us a little yes. bit about yes. what, what you mean when you talk about collaborative groups and professional work groups. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you teach individuals to do and how to be um, successful participants in those groupings? Yeah, I think that's a, I, a lot of the work, in my opinion, um, has been co-opted, right? And a lot yeah. of what people are calling professional learning communities, to me, um, are not the kinds of community practice of practice where what you're trying to produce, right, is new knowledge together. That isn't actually what's happening. So when I yeah. talk about the work, um, I talk about um, – a, a focus on individual development, right, of the members of that group, and especially in terms of adult development and really moving in their um, development as, as people in the world but also as adults, you know, in schools so that they're able to take on more and more complexity in terms of how they think about their work, their role, their students, their teaching. The others to pay attention to group development and what it is we're doing together that allows us to be smarter than any one of us could be on our best day alone. And I think if that doesn't happen in the context of the time we spend together, then it's not actually time well spent. We, we actually shouldn't have been together if we could have done the work alone. And finally, um, 
I think that a, a key element of this is what I said before, going public with one's practice. Um, sometimes I, I joke a little bit with folks as we start and say, we won't start by asking this question, but eventually we ought to. And the question is, what's the one thing about your practice that, um, if, that you know that you're not doing as well as you need to in terms of benefiting your students? Um, and you've been working on it for a while, and it's not getting better, and you hope no one finds out about, right? So that level of um, wow. going public with practice. And finally, to engage in reflective dialogue. You know, we know that the way ways in which we develop as adults is the engine that drives that is reflective practice and reflective dialogue. But, right, that means more than talking to myself in my car. And I think teachers do that kind of – educators do that kind of reflection all the time, but it means reflecting with somebody else so that you can see that wherever you go, there you are, looking at the world through your particular lens, right, from your own cultural context, from your racial context, from your sure. ethnic context, from your gender context, and that what you need to do is see the world through other people's lenses, and you can and be challenged, right, in your own view of the world, and you can only do that within the context of reflective dialogue. And all of that takes time. It takes um, dedicated time. It takes time that allows people to slow down and embrace discomfort. Um, and it takes skill to do that as well. So sure. that's and when I talk about it, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about 30 minutes um, with somebody giving teachers data to look at and say, you know, in the next 30 minutes, make some sense of this and develop an action plan. To me, that, that's not going to work. Well, you know, you mentioned something that uh, is really uh, uh, courageous for, for someone to do, is to put their, their work and, then, and especially their practice uh, up for, uh, for exhibition and for, for people to see and comment. Um, how do you get people to that place? That's that's one of right. the sort of cultural, you know, aspects of this. That, I mean, cultural in the sense of school culture that you have to build that in and make it a place where, uh, in your individual school, a place where you value that and that people yep. trust each other. How do you how do you build that um, yeah. in, in in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the really important question. Um, and so the answer I give, I don't mean it superficially cause, because I know that it's it's hard to do. But, I, you know, there's the old adage, you make the road by walking. And so I think the way you do it, and, and I haven't discovered a better way, is by doing the work together. And so, um, so that's a conundrum, right? Because if people don't trust each other, they'd be less likely to bring the work. And so I, I think that it requires skilled facilitation and skilled coaching to build the kind of culture and climate so that people actually feel safe in taking real risks together. And that uh -huh. needs to be done carefully and deliberately. You know, one of the ways that, that I do that work um, is through the use of protocols, right, which I know also um, have a bad name in a lot of places. I think primarily because teachers in schools have had, used, have protocols used on them or to them. 
um, and without the, the conversation about why are we going to talk in this way, what is it, what kind of conversation is it going to allow, and what kind of learning will talking in this way allow, that left to our own devices, sort of using the habits we always use and talking, you know, wouldn't get us there. So for me, um, protocols create the safety within which people can take risks. And I can say more about that if you're interested about how I think that works. Um, sure, that's well, one way. Know. One uh-huh. way that, well, I, know, that I do that work. Uh, well, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, one of the things that I was going to mention is you talked about protocols. For those who may be listening and not familiar with protocols, if you look up tuning protocols uh, on Google, we'll put them, we'll post them on the site. There are a few really right. good ones. And, Jean, you can remember back um, back when this first started with Joe McDonald and some of the others, yeah. that we, we were, you know, testing this stuff out. Um, when yeah. we were doing it, and and finally, uh, some of the protocols were, you know, were kind of institutionalized. But uh, the protocols for me, um, I actually use those in in my graduate classes um, um, as a way for students to present. And um, I like it. I like them because yeah. they provide structure. You mentioned yeah. that earlier that you know if it's something you can do alone, we shouldn't have met. You know, we shouldn't have been meeting. Um, but this is a way, a really structured way to give and receive feedback. Um, going back to what, what I mentioned earlier, that it is something that requires a great deal of trust, but things that you have to build in order to make the culture at your school or in your classroom one that um, values uh, peer, peer feedback. Um, and yeah. Yeah. what are your what are the some of the challenges you see to that um, or, or that yeah. you face? Because a lot of the people who are listening um, are in some pretty tough contexts. Um, some in very heavily union um, states, and others are not. Um, you know, so different contexts. Um, what what are the what are the places where you see? Um, the challenges and what those cha- what are those challenges to actually doing this kind of reflection and feedback? Um, and so I'm just going to say a tiny bit more about protocols because I think it'll lead into that. Yeah, um, sure. And so you know I think what what has happened with protocols is people have paid a lot of attention to the how and the what. But in 2009, when we started the School Reform Initiative. We actually went back to all of the authors of the most common, of really, of all the protocols we had on our site, especially the most commonly used ones, and we asked the question, um, why would you use this? What's the purpose? And so I think that what a lot of times what people believe about this work, and it, it bears out in a lot of contexts, it's not the way I do it, um, is that, um, that people are told which protocols to use or how to talk or what they're supposed to do. The way I use them is to say, all right, Brian, if you're going to come to the table with your work, you actually have some autonomy in this work. And I know when I talk with folks in unions, um, this is something they're really, uh, it's not only union states, but um, in any place, independent schools, um, in places where people have felt that so much of their professional judgment and their ownership of their work and curriculum has has been slowly eroded. But, um, they like hearing this, that you get to decide, actually, um, how you're going to get your feedback. There's some autonomy in this. And you get to decide how you're going to use the feedback that you got. 
right? I have a colleague in New York City, Alan Dichter, who once said to me, it's a little bit like this, Gene. Um, you get to decide how you're going to use that feedback to benefit your practice and your kids, but what you decide is not none of my business. So what we're doing in this work, when we use the protocols thoughtfully, right, not just as tools, but as tools with insight about how we're going to move our work forward, um, I think what happens is a new kind of accountability gets established, that rather than the accountability always coming top down, we build this lateral accountability. Because if you've brought your work to us as a group, and we've given you thoughtful feedback and spent time carefully considering the issue that you put on the table and your kids' work or whatever it is, then you go off. You, the next time we meet, you have to tell us what you did, right? Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's called closing the loop. And when I see you in the school, I then not only have a right but a responsibility to say to you, you know, you said that this was something you were struggling with and you needed to get better at for your so your kids could um, improve their learning. And so what have you done? What feedback really rose to the top? What are you trying? And how can I help? Right? Mm -hmm. So those are the practices and principles of what I would call critical friendship that we took, you know, that we really worked on with Ted Sizer in the late 80s and early 90s, that um, we're in this together. And your kids are my kids. And so what starts to happen in the school is the conversation shifts and the norms and values in the school shift so, so that we're all of the kids are all of our kids, right? And we're actually yeah. working together. But you retain, so you know your kids best, and you know your classroom context best. And so you retain the responsibility and the right um, in terms of how you're going to enact that feedback in your classroom. Does that help? Yeah. Does that no, make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So to our listeners who may have just joined us, um, I have uh, Ms. Jean Thompson-Grove, um, who has done some uh, phenomenal work working uh, across the country, leading seminars on creating professional learning communities, doing collaborative uh, learning groups, and looking at student work. Um, she, she's joined us today, and we're just having a great conversation about that work. Um, one of the things that um, I, I have uh, within my department of colleagues who uh, do a lot of work with adult learning and um, yeah. have a real um, uh, profound respect for that work and and the you know the nuances associated with um, you know and 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 assumptions we make about um, how adults learn. Um, yes. Tell us, tell us a little bit about um, what you end up doing um, when you have people at different stages of readiness for this uh, in a school. How do you address that? Right. And so um, that's, a, that's a great question. So what we know about the work in, in intentional um, communities of practice and professional learning communities is that the, the one thing that that um, helps all people to learn, right? And it's, it's part of Ellie Drago Severson's, you know, her four pillars of practice. But what sure. we know helps all people learn um, is reflect, is, I've said it before, reflective dialogue. So it's possible then, to, you mentioned the tuning protocol. So it's possible for an instrumental knower to come to the group. And, you know, if I knew you were an instrumental knower and you wanted feedback on, a unit that you were planning or had just taught that didn't go as well as you'd hoped, I might suggest to you 
um, if you didn't know. The way you want your feedback um, probably will be with the tuning protocol because what I know about the tuning protocol is that you're going to get very concrete very specific suggestions and ideas, which is, as an instrumental knower is, is really what you, what you want, right? That's what you think you want. But I would also make sure that I connected you with somebody in the group who's actually a socializing knower and who has used some of the practices that you think you might want to try in your classroom and suggest to you that what you might want to do is watch this other person in the group um, you know, use one of the practices in her classroom. Because what I know is that for that person who's a socializing knower, it's going to help her to have somebody asking her, well, why did you do it that way? And when the kids mm-hmm. responded this way, why didn't you do this? Right? That's going to help her in her development move from being a socializing knower to um, a self-authoring knower because she's going to start to align her values and her beliefs with her practices. But it's also going to help move you right, from seeing that, oh, it's not a script that I'm using in my classroom. There are, I have to be thoughtful about how I use the practice and pay attention to how kids are responding. And that's going to move you to being a socializing knower. So that's that's how I think about that work around adult development in the context of these, you know, intentional learning communities. I do other work with designing adult learning, designing professional development. That's a little bit different from this. Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I won't I won't go on to that you know I won't go into that here. But I yeah. actually think that schools um, when you talked about the challenges I'd love to talk to, about a couple of challenges sure. to this work for schools yeah. um, as well. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, because I know I don't want to just um, so one time um, uh, Tom Sergiovanni, who's now deceased, said to me, um, and I think it's written about in his book moral leadership. I believe the quote comes from there, but I I had a chance to be with him in a seminar, and he said, you know, the thing that worried him about schools is that what we seem to focus on are simple structures. And um, I mean, what we seem to focus on are complex structures, and that the structures get more and more and more complex, as opposed to thinking about simple structures. Um, And what he said was that as we get more and more complex structures in schools, all of our resources, our energy, our time, et cetera, go into maintaining these complex structures. I think we see that with some of the teacher evaluation structures. As opposed to having simpler structures, which then means that our resources can go to complex thinking and and deep thinking. So what I see in schools right now is it's almost as if we're on steroids. I mean, that's the Mm -hmm. only metaphor I can think of. Where we, we just put in more and more and more and more structures and things for teachers to do that are at a pretty low level. It's superficial work at kind of low cognitive tasks uh-huh. as opposed uh-huh. to having fewer structures to maintain and so that people can do some really deep thinking um you know, exploring multiple perspectives and really engaging in real inquiry together. So that's one thing. And the other sort of um, challenge I see is is the way people are using data in schools. Um, You know, I've been doing collaborative inquiry work almost as as long as I've been doing this work, since about 1996, 97. And I've just been just so puzzled by how we use data in schools as if numbers is all that's important. Right, and as if numbers actually tell us something, um, uh-huh. when really what we know is that they're proxies for kids' actual learning and actual work, um, and the ways in which we, 
I can't, the ways we we talk about data and being data driven. You know, I agree with Andy Hargraves at DC. Used to work with with Michael Fullen to say, you know, if I have a car, I don't want data to be driving. I want professionals to be driving. I right. want us to be professionally driven, and I want data to be in the car. And I want us to take that data and to make meaning of it because it's just data until we actually um, turn it into information. And um, you know, you and I could take the same data set and make a completely different meaning out of it, or uh-huh. we could look at the exact same thing and call what's the real data um, different data, right? Because we're looking at the world differently. So it's very complex work, but it needs time and it needs fewer structures, simpler protocols, so that we can actually make some meaning and listen to each other really carefully about, you know, the the assumptions, you talked about assumptions, and what are the assumptions we're holding about why this data looks the way we do? And we need to triangulate our data, basically, Mm -hmm. right? We need to ask, what else do we need to look at? You know, who else knows something about this? What else do we need to generate, um, you know, in terms of data? What questions aren't we asking? So I think those two um, things in schools are, are some, of, um, some of our biggest challenges. And the third and final challenge is um, I think that those of us who are administrators, so I was a director of professional development for six years in a district outside of Boston, and the most important thing we did in moving the district to being mm-hmm. district-wide doing this kind of work is that as administrators, we all did the work as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because this isn't work that's just good for teachers to do. If it's good yeah. for them, it's good for all of us. And so when administrators say to me, what's the single thing I could do to move my school and shift the culture, I say do the work yourself. And if mm-hmm. you do it yourself, I think you're going to know something about what needs to happen to shift the culture. Oh, sure. No, that's, that's, thank you for that. Uh, that's, that's very, very insightful. And, and, you know, one of the things that we try to do, as I said, we're solutions-oriented, uh, we try to point out some of the challenges to the work um, that we, we've had a number of guests on talk about various topics, and, you know, we would be doing a disservice not to um, at least explore some of what, you know, the challenges are, because I get people who who come back at us and say, yeah, but that's just, you can't do that in my school, and that's the reason I brought up earlier uh, how some yeah, people, yeah. yeah, and some people confuse feedback for evaluation, and that's the reason I brought up, that's you know, right. the, the union right. Um, is that, you know, feedback and evaluation. And I remember uh, very early on in my graduate work, one of our evaluation uh, professors said, um, uh, you know, that what we need to have in terms of our accountability system is that we do work that is to improve and not to prove. And so evaluation tends to be the, the, you know, where you look at a rubric and you say, um, prove to me you're good enough to do this. Where feedback yeah, yeah, is about yeah. how can I help you improve what you're doing? Now, some people would say, you know, but where is the accountability in that? I think that you can build in accountability structures with feedback right. as well. But at the end of the That's day, right. and whether there have been um, teachers that have been under my supervision or regular staff members, I've had people come to me and say, well, if you could, if we could turn this around, you know, it's been a year and it hasn't been, 
if we could turn this around and the person starts doing what, you know, what you have expected, what would you say? And I go, I would be the happiest person in the world because that's right, what this right. is about. It's not about, right. catching, you know, catching someone doing something wrong. It's really about right. how do we get what's best for our students um, out there. And, and, and it so, doesn't replace, right, it doesn't replace, um, you know, really robust um, uh, evaluation systems. And so two very quick stories. A school I'm working with has gone to school-wide professional learning groups. There are five of them. We have co-coaches. I'm one of the coaches. The principal is a co-coach um, with a literacy specialist of one of the groups. And she made it very clear that there would be a firewall between the work they were doing in that group and the feedback they were giving to each other in evaluation, and that people wouldn't hear their words um, in, from that group in, in more formal evaluation systems. And she's made good on that. And she did something else, which is, you know, everyone in the group is going to present work for feedback. Well, she was the second person to, to present work. So she actually, she did it too. And the other thing is I remember one time there was a fifth-grade teacher who got very, very tough feedback from her principal in a formal evaluation process. Um, she was quite devastated. She was a veteran teacher. And um, she came to us in our group, and she said, you know, I got really tough feedback, and I thought all last night about this. I knew we were meeting today. She was a religious person. And she said, I thought I could, I'm, I could bring this to God or I could bring it to you. I have to figure out what to do differently. So the principal mm -hmm. was working with her in a supervisory way, but she came to her colleagues, and she came clean. And she said, you know, she said that my classroom doesn't feel safe for all the mm -hmm. learners in the classroom. And she had quite specific examples of the ways I was using sarcasm. And I didn't know I was doing that. And so can you help me here? And we devised a whole action plan as a group for her, right? Mm -hmm. And so the two can work in concert with each other. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very very important. I, I'm I'm really I'm happy you shared that with us. Well, Jean, you know we are. I told you this would go fast, and we're uh, unfortunately at the end of our time together. Um, I really appreciate you, you know, coming on. Um, to our listeners, uh, we we had a wonderful conversation. If you came in late, please uh, replay and and get a chance to hear Miss Jean Thompson Grove talk about her work and some of the challenges associated with forming uh, professional learning groups um, among teachers and, and, and professional educators. Um, uh, next week... And, Brian, if, yeah. mm -hmm. Brian, can I just say, if people are interested, they can go to schoolreforminitiative.org. Um, there are summer institutes happening. There's a research page that's quite um, rich with downloadable articles. Um, there's a theory of action paper. There's an impact paper. And, of course, all the protocols are there free of charge. Excellent. Thank oh, you. And there's We're also a resource, resource, there's a resource, resource books that you can order as well. So I just want to make sure people know that. Sure, sure. And we're going to provide a link to that page on our uh, website. So anyone Great. Thank uh, you. get that, you can go to our website and get that. Um, uh, actually, this month we have a special double uh, episode month. Um, we're going to do next next week, actually, um, on Wednesday the 17th, we have um, noted psychologist um, uh, Dr. Art Markman, um, who's going to join us. He's a, uh, a scientific advisor for Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil shows. 
Um, he's going to come and he's going to talk to us about some of his work about uh, studying the he studies the way people make decisions. And so on a show like ours where we're talking about leadership, you can't talk about leadership without decision making. Um, so we're we're pleased to have uh, Dr. Art Markman with us next week. Um, it's been a fantastic time um, talking with Eugene again. Um, you know, we go way back, and so I'm I'm just so delighted that the work that um, uh, we we were engaged in uh, so many years ago is still doing, improving, and doing so much for for um, students and 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 teachers and and wonderful work with uh, those that need it. Um, so. Um, Thank you. We, we appreciate you coming in. And so until next time, folks, um, on the 17th, go well, stay well.